0: to be with you this Easter Sunday morning. My name is Trevor. Welcome to our church. We gather together today to celebrate the most important event that's happened in all of human history. At the heart of our faith and at the heart of our celebration this morning ...is a man who died on a cross on Friday... ...and who walked out of the grave resurrected on Sunday morning. We celebrate Jesus, the resurrected King... ...the one whose conquering of the grave means that death has been defeated... ...and that immortality is available to all. He is risen indeed... Amen? Amen? If you are here this morning, we want to welcome you. We hope that you would feel genuinely welcome. Because we believe that while the cross on Friday unlocked the door, the resurrection opens it for everyone. Easter is for everyone. Now when many people think of Christian faith, they don't always or even maybe most of the time talk about its inclusivity. But the empty tomb that Jesus comes out of serves as an open door for all. Every one of us this morning is either an outsider ...or was an outsider. We all know what it's like to be on the outside looking in. As Christians gather across the world this Resurrection Sunday... ...many people think that this very gathering is strange, odd, weird. That people would get together and say that 2,000 years ago... ...the most important influential person in human history died on a cross, and rose again on the third day. And many people will look upon Christians and say, that Easter celebration, that's a nice thing for them to celebrate. But I want to declare to you this morning that Easter is for everyone and that all outsiders are welcome. When, I was, um, when, I, when our kids were young, we would read this story that Dr. Seuss wrote called Sneetches. And if you've never read Sneetches, the simple story is that the Sneetches, there are two groups of Sneetches, those with stars on their bellies and those who are Plain-bellied snitches. And the star belly sneetches feel like they are superior to the plain belly snitches. Until one day a guy comes along and says that he can turn the plain bellies into star bellies. And they all line up and they they become like the Star bellies, and then the star bellies get kind of unhappy because now there's no way for them to differentiate themselves. So all of a sudden they ask for their stars to be removed so that they can once again feel like they are superior. That sense of feeling like there's always people who come together, maybe it's in our workplace, maybe it's in society, there's always an elite class who sort of removes itself and and says, we're over here and you're outsiders, you stay over there, you don't get the privileges that we have. That exists everywhere. Christian faith declares this morning that because of what Jesus has done, all are invited To be insiders as a part of God's family. It's the beautiful thing, one of the beautiful things we proclaim about the Easter sermon, about the resurrection itself. None of us like to feel like outsiders. Some of us have gotten invitations to things that we would not have gone to. Or sorry, we we didn't get invited to something that we would not have gone to, but we are frustrated because we just wanted to be invited. Do you ever ever have that moment where you find out about an event and you think to yourself, "I, I wouldn't have gone to that, I just wanted to be invited. We don't like to feel like we are outsiders. And so this morning... Some of you are here looking in on Christian faith, and I want you to know, I hope you feel welcome, but I want you to hear that Easter is for you. Some of you are here, and you're expecting another sentimental message about Easter, and you want to hear the story and leave unchanged. Others of you are a bit cynical about the whole thing. You've been dragged here by someone in your family, poked and prodded to arrive at this Easter Sunday. I want to tell you that I believe that God wants to speak to you this morning. People don't become Christians primarily because they're given a mountain of evidence. Most people become Christians because they experience the power of God. And so it's my prayer and hope that this morning you would meet God. If you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to go to a text that you probably weren't expecting to go to. It's in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got a Bible, either physical or um, handheld, feel free to open to Acts chapter 10. This morning we're going to look at a sermon. We're going to hear a sermon that was proclaimed by this early follower of Jesus named Peter. Peter was once a coward. Peter has always been a bit clickish. He felt like an insider. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter comes to realize fully that God cares about the outsiders as well. Peter was a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus claimed to be God. He did miraculous things. He lived a perfect moral life. But he didn't come mainly to teach or mainly to heal. He came mainly to die. He died a death that he didn't deserve. And on the third day he rose again. Declaring that death doesn't get the last word and that he is victorious. His resurrection, which we celebrate today, proved to the whole world that he was more than just a man. He was God in flesh. His resurrection validated his healings validated his accomplishment on the cross, validated his claims. The resurrection made it clear that he was God in flesh and that what he had come to do, he had succeeded at. It was received then and still remains to be the best news in the entire world. But some of Jesus' followers thought that that news was really kind of just for them. Just for those who are part of the Jewish community. They believed that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, had come, but mostly just for them. They thought it was exclusive and not inclusive of all, including Peter. So I just want to say to you this morning that if you are here and you feel like you are an outsider... If you feel like you are looking in on Christianity, that you're not a part of it, but you're looking in on Jesus. You're looking in on this movement he began. I want you to know that you're welcome here. And I want you to see this morning why the resurrection matters and some of the gifts, the Easter gifts, that the resurrection offers to us. But many of you are insiders this morning. Many of you know what it's like. To be a part of God's family. But I hope that you remember this morning what it was like to be an outsider. And I hope that you're able to appreciate once again the gifts God has for us. So, Acts chapter 10. Let me just give a touch of context. Peter is sitting on his rooftop... And he's praying when he gets a vision from God where God wants to make clear to Peter that what Peter thinks of as unclean needs to now be seen as clean. This is a clear message for Peter because God is trying to make it clear to Peter that the people he sees as unclean are in fact invited into what God is doing. So as Peter is receiving this vision on his rooftop, he gets a knock on the door. The knock is from some delegates of a Roman soldier named Cornelius. Cornelius is a pretty decent guy. He cares for the poor. He sees himself as as, as pretty good. He is interested in God. He is seeking after God. And God tells Cornelius to send this small delegation to Peter. So the delegation knocks on the door. Peter is interrupted and then Peter decides to go with this delegation to Cornelius' house. When Peter gets to Cornelius' house, the first thing he says... We'll get that sorted out over there. Um, when, when Peter gets to Cornelius' house, the first thing he says is, I'm not supposed to be here with you. I don't, I don't eat with people like you. I don't associate with people like you. Why am I here? And Cornelius says, Peter, tell us about Jesus. Tell us who know very little about Jesus. Tell us about Jesus. God wants you to tell us about Jesus. God told us to find you to tell us about Jesus. And so this morning, I want, to he- I want you to hear how Peter articulates the Christian message to those who are on the outside. Acts Chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Peter says this in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. But accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel. Announcing the good news of peace through Jesus. Who happened throughout the province. Oh, sorry. Who who is Lord of all. Verse 37. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. Beginning in Galilee. After the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. We are witnesses of Everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now as Peter is preaching this sermon in Acts 10, the people start praising God and they kind of interrupt Him and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and Peter and his group of insiders is amazed that God is truly amongst those who they see as outsiders. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to point to some things that outsiders need to hear and insiders need to be reminded of. Think of these as five gifts that the resurrection assures for us. Five gifts that the resurrection makes real to us. And here's the first one. Gift one. Invitation. In verses 34 and 35, it takes a moment, but Peter realizes that God loves outsiders as much as insiders. That God loves those that we often think God may not love. Peter's amazed to see this. It starts messing with his head. Right? Because it's not how he's been thinking. He's been thinking, well, I know God loves me and I know God loves us. But now I am seeing that God loves outsiders as much as insiders. I'm not entirely sure that the world knows that we believe this message. But I want you to hear this morning that Christianity is not a group of moral people who are trying to get better. Christianity is normal people struggling with failure. Who have heard the invitation of the Almighty. See, Cornelius is an outsider. But now he has been invited He once felt left out, but now he's a part of the party. It's great when you feel like you're an outsider, and then you get to be invited inside. When I first moved to L.A., someone had mentioned to me about the most famous exclusive club in Los Angeles, the Magic Castle. The Magic Castle is apparently a house where there's a ton of magicians who are members, and they, they walk around, and they do magic, and they practice magic. And the whole thing seemed very interested to me, and I thought, that's great. I'd like to go to the Magic Castle. I like magic shows. That's the, I like the good magic, not the weird magic. So good magic, not weird magic, lest you question my Christian credentials. So, um, so the Magic Castle seemed like this mysterious place. And one day, a friend of mine who was friends with a member said, I've got tickets. Would you like to go to the Magic Castle? And I was like, yes, this is gonna be great. I got dressed up, went to the Magic Castle, had a meal, saw some magic, and I can say with confidence that the best part of going to the Magic Castle is getting to tell other people that you got to go to the Magic Castle. (laughs) Like seriously, I'm sorry if any of you are like huge fans, The, the food not that great, the magic sometimes okay, but really it's the exclusivity that makes it so appealing. Because none of us like to feel like we are outsiders. But the beauty of Jesus and the resurrection, the beauty of the open door that is the open tomb, is that Jesus doesn't come to invite us into some subpar Christian cultural experience. No, an invitation from Jesus is an invitation to be united to God himself. Jesus doesn't invite us into a particular way of voting. Jesus doesn't invite us into a self-righteous moral club where people gather together to look down on the rest of the world. No, Jesus invites us into unity with himself. And everybody Peter sees is invited. What makes Someone right with God is not how hard they try to be right with God, but how they respond to Jesus. The empty tomb is an open door to all. The second gift, the gift of peace. Notice that in verse 36 Peter says that this is the good news of peace through Christ. Now, when we think of peace, we typically think of the absence of conflict, that our marriages are at peace when we're not fighting, that two countries are at peace when they are de facto, not at war, that there's peace in the home when the kids aren't at each other's throats. We think of peace as the absence of conflict, but the biblical vision of peace is much more big and much more beautiful than just the absence of conflict. In the Bible, right, peace is, is the restoration of our relationship with God and ourselves and with others and with all of humanity. It is, as the Old Testament words, it's the great shalom of God. We desperately want peace And we desperately need peace. Our lives are marked by conflict. We feel conflict in our jobs, conflict in our homes, conflict in our relationships. And then, when we're not so busy with all the other things we're doing, we use our free time to log on to social media networks, which are just essentially inflaming divisions that exist between us. Conflict is everywhere. And Peter says that that thing that's inside of you, that longing for peace that you want, is available through Christ. And Jesus had told his disciples, I tell you these things so that you may have peace. In this life, you will experience difficulty, trouble. But Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And where do we see him overcoming the world? We see it in the resurrection. Many of us will look for peace inside of ourselves. We believe falsely that most of our problems are just about us either correcting our own behaviors or just getting the world to correct theirs. The self help industry is booming. But the Bible does not say that the answer to peace is found in you. It says that it's outside of you, found in Jesus, the resurrected one. You won't find the peace you're looking for in another Amazon package, you won't find it in a job promotion or a raise. You won't find it once those friendships are no longer at odds with one another. You'll find the peace you are looking for when you find your identity in the resurrected Jesus. Some of you are here this morning and your biggest need is peace. I want you to know it is not a facade. It is real and it is available to you in and through Jesus. The empty tomb means that the peace Jesus promised is real because he has overcome the world. The third gift is victory. Jesus taught ...wherever he went. But he did more than teach. He demonstrated power over death and decay and evil. And the resurrection is a place where we see... ...that he defeats the devil's greatest weapon, death itself. Easter is the moment when death dies... In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible declares that Jesus defeated the devil. Now, we don't like to talk about the devil. Some Christians talk about the devil all the time. Some almost never. But we do know the power of temptation. Who here hasn't been tempted? Many of us just got through the Lent season where some of us gave up chocolate or dessert or sugar or alcohol or social media or a whole host of things that people give up during Lent. Very few of us do it successfully. Because we know through the Lenten season that temptation is real. We struggle with having the ability to actually follow through when we say, I don't want to do that for this period of time. We still find ourselves going to it. The number of times I have given up social media only to find myself mindlessly opening it when there's an open moment in my day is more than I can or want to be honest about. We're addicted to our phones. We're addicted to games. We're addicted to our passions and our sinful desires. We are Addicted to the coping mechanisms that we use to try to make ourselves feel better when everything feels chaotic. Are we slaves to our temptations? Is that as good as it gets for us this morning? Mere slaves to temptation? No. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. But the Bible declares... That if you have Jesus, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you. That the victory of Jesus is available for you. That his victory isn't just for him, but it serves as an offering to you so that you may have victory in your life as well. Jesus said... If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Well, that claim doesn't make a whole lot of sense if he is still buried somewhere. But if he is resurrected, and if he's telling the truth, then the very power of God is available to you this morning. The power of the empty tomb, the power over death, and sin, and the devil is available to you this morning. Peter says that Jesus has victory. Fourth, justice. In verse 42, Peter says that Jesus is the appointed judge of the living and the dead. That because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, but because he walked out of the tomb as resurrected, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That he is truly the world's judge, which means that justice is real. We long for justice, don't we? We look out in the world and we see things that aren't right We turn on the news and we can point our finger at almost any story and say, See more evidence that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Which leads us to this question who and what will make things right? Will it be a new regime? A new president? New politicians? New systems? New structures? The Bible says, no, that the only one who can make things right is the one who rose from the dead. That Jesus, the good one, the perfect one, the holy one, that he holds the keys to the kingdom. And in him, he will be the judge of the living and the dead. In his great work, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky writes that if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. Everything is allowable. Everything is ultimately okay because there is no judge but the Bible declares that Jesus is the judge and in 2 Corinthians 5 it says that one day we will sit before the one who is on the judgment seat and we are thankful that the one who is on the judgment seat is the one who loves us more than we can imagine he is the world's true judge he is the perfect one he has the last word The empty tomb means that Jesus gets to sit in the seat of judgment, and the empty tomb means that justice ultimately falls into his hands, which is good news because he is good. Fifth and finally, the last gift that we get is the forgiveness of sin. Peter in verse 43 says that all the prophets testify about him that everyone, and that word everyone means everyone, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, when we preach about justice... We love justice. We love the idea of God coming and making things right. We love the idea of God coming and saying, that's not okay. We love God when he shows up and says, the mistreatment of those people is not okay. When God shows up and says, I will no longer allow that to happen. That's wrong. We love that until we start to discover that the same wrong things that exist in the world Also exist in us. Do you ever notice that the same things that you cry out for God to fix, if you've got eyes to see, I hope you see it, friends, that you play a role in those things constantly? So, how can God be just and bring justice and also be forgiving? That's the question. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine that you and your friends decide to go out for drinks after work one evening. And imagine that after you've had a couple of drinks, you have that strong sort of odd sensation that maybe you've had a little too much. And so you decide that you're going to drive home. After all, you can't afford an Uber. Finances are tight. You've got too much college debt. You took out one of those weird credit cards at a kiosk one day, and now the bills are piling up, and you don't have the money, and your home is merely a couple of miles away. So one of your friends looks at you and says, you okay to drive, and you kind of feel like the answer is no but your pride gets the better of you and so you say no I'll be fine. You get in your car, you drive and before you arrive home you get that sinking feeling that gets every one of us when red and blue lights are flashing in our rear view mirror. You're told to pull over You do so, and the police officer asks you to roll down your window, tells you that you've been swerving. You didn't think you were swerving, but you have been. And then he invites you to step out of the car. Next thing you know, you find yourself sitting in jail for drunk driving. And your first thought is, I hope my dad doesn't find out. You're given a court date. And you arrive at the courthouse. You walk in for your arraignment, your, your, your trial. And the words, all rise, are spoken and the judge enters into the room. And it's about the worst thing you could have imagined. As the person who is the judge turns out to also be your father. Now, growing up, your father didn't talk much about his work as a judge. But you know he's got a reputation for being a very good judge. Your father takes the bench and looks at you, and you can see in his eyes the disappointment. After being seated, your father looks at you and says, how How do you plead? And you know that the evidence is stacked against you. And so you say, guilty. I'm guilty. And your father looks at you with a mixture of both love in his eyes, but also disappointment, and says to you that the penalty for your actions is at a minimum about $5,000. Money you don't have. That you could have killed someone. That that momentary moment of selfishness and pride could have led to a horrible outcome. And it comes time for the sentencing. What is your father to do? And I want you to think about how you think about... What the Father does, because sometimes how we think about what the judge, the Father, does in this moment tells us how we think about God. See, for some of you, your conception is, well, if the judge is like God, then that's easy. He says, $5,000, learn your lesson, deal with the consequences, maximum penalty. After all, he is a good judge, and that feels like the right thing to do. And so some of you, your conception of God is one where in which you have done things that you wish you didn't do. You've done things you're ashamed of. You feel a sense of guilt or shame and you wonder how God feels about you. And so your conception of God is that God stands at the end and says, here is your punishment for what you have done. Others of us take a different approach or a different view of God. We take this view of God. We, we think, oh, you know what? Because he loves me, what he's going to do is he's going to say, don't worry about the, the $5,000. You're not guilty. I love you. You're forgiven. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But you know that there's a problem with that, right? You know that it's like not really justice and it's not really a good judge and it's, it's kind of special treatment which we sometimes want but recognize doesn't make for a very fair or good or just system. So what does the judge do? Well, I'll tell you what I think the judge does if the judge is anything like God. I think the judge looks at you in the eyes and says that your transgression comes with a great penalty. The judge then tells you that you are ordered to pay the full $5,000 and any other additional fines that are included. I think that he then bangs the gavel and declares that court is dismissed. And as people begin to get up from the courtroom and walk away as paperwork begins to be filed, I think that he steps off of the bench and he comes around and he sits next to you. And I think he then puts his arm around you. And he says, my child, I love you. And then he reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out his checkbook and he writes a check for the full amount. Tears it, looks you in the eyes and offers it to you out of love. What do you do? Do you receive it, maybe with tears welling up in your eyes, out of gratitude for your father? Or do you reject it and declare, you know what, I can pay for this on my own when you know you can't. God offers forgiveness to you. He writes a check for the full amount of everything you've done that you know you shouldn't have done. He says, I'll pay it because I love you. And he invites every outsider to become an insider. Not through your work, but through his. What you must do, though, is receive his payment. You must accept his victory, his peace, his justice, his forgiveness, more than anything, you must receive him. For he is, as Peter declares, Lord of all. And while death comes for us all, death did not defeat Jesus, and if you have him, it cannot defeat you. But you have to let him in. So this morning, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that the tomb is empty. Let's celebrate that death is defeated. Let's celebrate that peace is real and that his peace is our peace. That his victory is our victory. That his justice is our justice. That his forgiveness is our forgiveness. That his life is our life. That he is Lord of all and he he invites anybody who wants to receive him into receiving those Easter gifts. Outsiders are welcome. Do you remember what it was like to be an outsider? Do you know the good news of what it means for Christ to invite you in? Have you received him this morning? I hope that you have. If you're here this morning and you are an insider, which of those gifts are you most thankful for this morning? And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're an outsider looking in, I want you to know that Jesus offers all of it and more to you. But you have to receive him. He is the good one, the perfect one, the wise one, the powerful one. He lived, he died, and on the third day, he rose again. And his victory is our victory. Let us pray. Father, I want to pray right now in this moment for those who are insiders. They have received these gifts, received you, Jesus, but maybe they have forgotten about them. They have forgotten about the victory available for them in and through Jesus. They have forgotten about peace. They have forgotten about their forgiveness of all of their sins. They've forgotten the beauty of what you've accomplished. They've forgotten what it was like to be on the outside looking in. So I pray this morning they would celebrate that the tomb is empty, that death is defeated, and that you are truly victorious. And, and, And Father, I want to pray specifically right now for those who are here, who throughout this entire morning have been feeling like outsiders. And Lord, I pray that this is the morning where they receive Jesus. This is the morning where they say yes to Jesus. This is the morning where they say, God, I want all of those gifts and I believe that you offer them to me and that they're real because that tomb is empty. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would move in power among us this morning that we might receive the gift of Jesus and these gifts that he offers. Lord, we celebrate you this morning. Help us to rejoice this morning in these gifts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.